you know, if you have three companies that are all developing driverless car technology and there there's a race to the finish line, which there often is in the technology space, um, then each one of them would be able to pr- have to prove that they developed that technology internally um, in order to assert their rights. Hey, this is Aaron Price, the CEO of Tech United, back for another awesome episode. Today, we are talking about the secret of trade secrets. We've got Phil Antoon, the managing director of Alvarez and Marcel, as well as Mary Guzman, the founder and CEO of Crown Jewel Insurance. Both of you, hello. Nice to see you. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Let's start, Phil, with for those who aren't familiar with Alvarez, I know we've done a bunch together this year, but remind people... What is it that you guys do? Alvarez and Marcel is a global consulting company providing services for a wide range of companies, all the way from early stage pre-revenue companies up to multinational uh, global companies. And we do quite a bit of work with Tech United, focusing frequently on the earlier stage companies around a variety of topics. And, And I personally focus on valuation of early stage companies and intellectual property. Awesome. And Mary, let people know what Crown Jewel Insurance does. So we're a risk and insurance advisory firm, and we help organizations identify, value, insure, and then mitigate and recover around the misappropriation or theft of their intellectual property assets. Excellent. So topics we're going we're gonna to dive into today. So Phil, can you share how you work with Mary and why it's, it's so important to this conversation? So a very key part of trade secret insurance is the value of the trade secret. It really is going to drive how much insurance will be placed and the cost of that insurance. So it really is the first key step in in the process. And if you look at it this way, Mary really handles the overall, as I say, she runs this show relative to the overall trade secret insurance process with the valuation being a key cog in that. So whether I get a call from a prospect or Mary gets a call from a prospect, we immediately reach out to each other and then we go from there in terms of how we can assist the, uh, the company with placing the insurance. So trade circuits are the fastest growing type of IP, but I'm not sure that people fully understand what that actually means. Mary, maybe you can, you can help people understand what are, what exactly are we talking about here? Okay, that's a great question. And there is a lot of misconception out there about what trade secrets are. They are the fourth um, intellectual property asset type other than patent, copyright, and trademark. But unlike those types of intellectual property assets, these don't come with a sort of a guaranteed approval and promise that's that the trade secret or that the asset is yours and that you will be granted certain protections around that. You don't get a approved piece of paper. So they are a litigation right only, meaning the only way you can enforce your rights around an asset that you believe is a trade secret and you're treating as a trade secret is to litigate on the back end unless you insure those assets, which we'll talk about in a moment. But a trade secret can really, it's a very broad definition. It can be in any form. So it can be a drawing, design, formula, you know, manufacturing process, software code, financial algorithm, anything that your organization organization has independently developed that you're putting specific 
um, risk management tools around to make sure that it's kept secret, which is critical, that those who have access know that it's supposed to be confidential and proprietary and that you have proper, proper non-disclosure and non-compete agreements, those types of things. But it also has to derive in, independent economic value for your company, either in the way of savings on income and expenses or generating additional revenue into the future. But that leaves it pretty wide open. Once you patent something, though, this is a really important thing to note. Once you apply for the patent approval of something, it loses its value as a trade secret because it's no longer secret. We're seeing a big paradigm shift away from patenting everything necessarily and keeping things in their trade secret form, largely because now you can insure these assets and because the 2016 Defend Trade Secrets Act allows much better protection around trade secrets, frankly, than even patents. So there's a lot to dig into here. Let, let you know, Phil, can you share some examples of tech trade secrets, in particular those that you might think uh, emerge from the startup community, but, but open to any examples you've got? Think about um, a startup company with a financial algorithm that could be used by private equity firms, hedge funds. Um, that is their business. That financial algorithm represents everything that they've done to date. It represents the future value of that company. If that, and that's a trade secret. If without protection, without insurance protection, you could lose the value of your entire company in, in, in a heartbeat, basically. So that's just one example of an early stage company. And if you think about it for a more developed company, let's say a more developed high tech company, maybe they could suffer a loss or two in certain trade secrets. But for an early stage company, that is your business. If you have a uh, software platform, for example, and not, not no patent protection, what happens if there's a theft of that software code? You're, you, you could be out of business from, from, the, from the very beginning. So in the high tech industry, it's extremely important to ensure that you have some type of protection for your, your most valuable intellectual property. And if it's not patented, it, it's a trade secret. And that is why it's just one of the reasons why having trade signatures is so important for early stage companies. I think the official terminology when that happens is you're screwed. What, when should someone consider patenting versus ensuring trade secrets? Because it seems like there's a very close, uh, they're, they're, they're closely related. That's open to either of you. Mary, I'll let you take. I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, I'll jump in. So we kind of leave that discussion up to the intellectual property attorneys who are advising our clients. Um, but we do often find that companies with a large patent portfolio often have a very large, if not larger, trade secret portfolio because that contemplates everything that's still in R&D potentially. And the further down the R&D development life cycle, the, the more valuable that asset is, of course. Um, but I think organizations are looking to see whether or not the lengthy protection that is offered to them under patents makes any sense. If the life the the value the life of the asset is going to be relatively short and it's going to become obsolete fairly quickly then maybe you don't even bother to try to get patent protection around it because by the time it gets approved you're going to be on to the next thing and or um, if it's something where somebody could relatively easy take a formula or a design or a drawing and tweak it just a tiny bit by viewing the patent application that's something that you may want to keep secret as well and so it sort of depends on what it is um, 
but those are just two examples of when you might want to keep something as a trade secret asset versus patenting. The other thing that I think we need to think about is that business processes cannot be patented. And so a lot of times it's not just, you might have different pieces of technology that are patented within a trade secret, but it's really how they work together that makes your, your business different and better than your competition. Can you share a little, go ahead, Phil, go ahead. Sorry, if I can add also just commercially from a value point of view, if an asset cannot be replicated, think about a secret formula. Could be for um, for a beverage, for example. It could be for a chemical company. If it can't be replicated, you're better off not going to get a patent on that on that IP because you'll lose the patent protection when the patent expires. Whereas if it's a trade secret, nobody can replicate it you wouldn't want to, to, to have it patented. The, the proprietary know-how continues out into essentially for, for years well beyond that of a patent. So sometimes it's really a function of the nature of the IP and, and can it be replicated? So I'm glad you brought up that example because in software, uh, first of all, the, the ingredients, it's, not, it's, it's rarely fully baked products tend to evolve continuously. And so, when should a company consider in their life cycle of developing, let's say specifically software, when it is potentially a trade secret? And then as that software changes, is there anything that they need to do to update their protection? How do they make sure that they continue to be uh, protected? So, Mary, let me, let me, I'm going to touch upon this quick. I got a call on Friday from uh, a prospect with um, financial algorithm and, Pre-revenue hasn't even spoken to any potential clients yet, but heard about the trade secret insurance and said, this is, this is essentially my business. This is my IP. And he wants to talk to us about getting trade secret insurance now, rather than waiting until he, he starts generating revenue. So I wanted to throw in terms of timing, I want, I wanted to throw out that we're seeing it that early in the process. And I think the earlier you can identify something as a potential trade secret asset, the better off you are because so much about trade secret litigation or enforcement, enforcing your rights around a trade secret has to do with your ability to simply prove that it was a trade secret, that it was yours and that you protected it properly. So if you can document going you know, further back that you you know, you grew that technology internally and that X number of people and X number of man hours went into the development of that asset, it becomes proof positive when you have to go and litigate or try to get what's called an ex parte seizure order to try to get the asset back. Um, and that, you know, we offer blockchain software platform for organizations to use to help them garner that proof, but the sooner the better, really. So you're bringing up a lot of interesting points here. So the first is I could see where if you have a, an employee where you, you separate and they start a competitive com company, there's an obvious issue. <clears throat> However, or additionally, it's very common in the software world that you know Uber, Lyft, Groundlink, and a dozen others all launch within a relatively similar timeframe because of external factors outside of the idea from the founder. And so if one were to, to pursue another, about potential IP issues here and said that they had some trade secret issue, but really they all built something similar at the same time. How would that case likely play out and how can one stay protected? So again, I'm not an IP litigator, but the way that that would work and the most important aspect of that for any company that's trying to assert its trade secret rights against another organization is to be able to demonstrate 
beyond, you know, be able to prove that they independently were developing that asset themselves. And um, certainly the longer period of time that you can do that, the better. If, you know, if you have three companies that are all developing driverless car technology and there's a race to the finish line, which there often is in the technology space, um, then each one of them would be able to have to prove that they developed that technology internally um, in order to assert their rights against another for trade secret misappropriation. I, I, I don't think either of you are attorneys, so I appreciate and, that. And I think, though, Mary, we may have, Mary, you may have lost there for a minute, the, the joys of virtual content oh, that's okay. uh, production. And Go ahead, Phil. Aaron, if I could throw in also, quite often what I see as a valuation expert, and, and I'm valuing intellectual property on a daily basis, it's not necessarily the software code itself. Quite often, it's the know-how on a process. And we see this all the time. So if you think about it, what happens in reality is you may have an idea that was generated here and there's a, a, a proprietary process behind it that it's difficult to figure out or replicate. The actual software coding can be done anywhere. That often gets outsourced to an R&D shop, um, quite often offshore. So it's not necessarily in many cases the value in the software, it's the value in the know-how and the processes the software captures and that, that know-how. So I think it's really important for, for companies in the tech industry to, to, to understand and differentiate between the know-how that is, where the value is contained. It may not necessarily be in the software code. It, it's often in the actual know-how, and it's that know-how that's proprietary that would be the subject of the trade secret insurance in many cases. Are there any documents that you... Uh, recommend that people include in the hiring process that extend into this category or do the normal employment agreements cover trade secrets, you know, as it pertains to the mistakes people make? Um, I think our attorney friends would tell us that um, non-disclosure agreements and non-compete language and ordinary hiring, you know, uh, employment agreements may not be robust enough um, to protect their crown jewels. You know, there is a lot of interpretation around what is adequate protection, and that gets debated, of course, during settlement negotiations and those types of things. But the more you can go towards proving that you went the extra mile around specific assets, especially those that are your company's crown jewels the better. So if you have, you know, just the, the specific project team that has to sign an even more robust non, non-disclosure and non-compete coming in, that's huge. But as important, or maybe even more important, you need to develop an exit strategy with an exit interview and a document upon their leaving of the company to make them sign and date something saying that, remember, you had an agreement, you promised not to take any proprietary information. You're now swearing to us that you're not doing that upon your departure and that you understand that it's confidential and proprietary and that we own it, please sign and date here. And the exit interview is in that case, and the signatory on that is much more important than the original document that they sign. I agree, and I happen to value non-compete agreements uh, pretty regularly. And I would not want to rely on a standard non-compete agreement to protect my trade secrets. It's Sometimes um, the, the individual is allowed to go compete. They just can't compete against certain competitors, for example. Certain states, you can't enforce non-competes, such as California. Think about all the high-tech work in California. So I agree with Mary completely. I, I would want something on the exit to, to be ironclad that they cannot do anything to touch the trade secrets. So with that in mind, what are other 
potential mistakes or mistakes that either of you see in market? What do people tend to get wrong in this? Or by the time an issue's come up, they wish they had done something else. What are some of the tips that you'd recommend people make sure that they, they think about now? I'll start with you. I will go back to you, Mary. Okay, thank you. So I would think um, the most important thing is to document, document, document um, what you're doing internally, what assets you believe could meet the definition of trade secret. First of all, I would suggest people look up the definition of trade secret under the Defend Trade Secrets Act, the DTSA, because that will be the primary focus of their potential enforcement action. Um, and there's something called the EONA proofs, which you have to show the existence, ownership, notice, and access to trade secrets in order to establish that they're trade secret. Um, you can look up information about that, but I would develop policies and procedures early and, and look at them often to make sure that you're documenting. Now, that is not to say that you want to show everyone your formula. Obviously, you don't want to do that. You just want to capture the metadata so that you know, again, sort of by a hashtag or a, a code that's associated with a particular product that, or process that you're developing, that that's what it is. That's a descriptor internally. And you want to capture how how many people, who's working on it, what the different iterations are, and all the wrong turns you've made, because that what we call negative know-how, those wrong turns also go into the valuation. So that now when you go in for summary judgment, you can say, we've got all this proof. It's tamper-proof because we blockchained it, and we can show that it was ours and that we were doing all the right things behind it. I think that's what most companies look at and really regret that they have not done. Love the response. Love that term, negative know-how. Um, but you talk about documentation quite a bit. Can you be specific, especially think about a small, you know, resource strapped team, maybe, you know, specifically how often should they get together to think about this and what exactly should that outcome of that document? I mean, what should, is this a one pager that's notes? Is this a hundred pages that's details? Like what, what documentation are we talking about here? Well, we happen to be supportive of a particular software platform. Um, I don't want this to turn into a sales pitch. It's called the Trade Secret Examiner. But still, even if you're not going to use something like that that has a blockchain um, component to it that's supported by blockchain, you know, even if it's an Excel spreadsheet that has, you know, sort of the name of what it is, a brief description internally so that you know what it is, um, number of man hours, internal billable rate, you know, how many times you've changed your forecast into the future sales of that asset, what's the future life of the asset, why do you think that's going to be the value, what are your competitors doing that you know of, all of those types of things, and it should be looked at at least, I would say, once a month, you know, even for a really small company, um, because the value of that asset is going to change as it becomes more sophisticated and it becomes more mature. And some of them will fall off if you decide to patent them or you abandon a strategy here or there. It's really important to keep that documented. So you were going to jump in, I believe, on some mistakes people make. Can you, can you share some of those mistakes? You have to be, it's really difficult to do when you're trying to develop a product. You have to look five and 10 years down the road. And you have to take a holistic approach to what you're doing. And I'll give an example. We often see companies early stage develop IP, and then they start generating sales outside the U.S. Sometimes it's the first sales outside the U.S. You have to have your legal entity and your tax structure in place before you start doing that, because you could end up leaving a lot of money on the table if you don't do that. So we talk about a holistic approach. It's essentially managing your intellectual property. It's not just the technology side of it. It's also the insurance side. It's the tax side. 
it's a legal entity structure side. Very important to, to understand early on in the process. Also, this could be a develop and, and, and sell approach where in five years, you know, there's going to be an exit strategy in five years. Well, you need to plan now for that exit strategy. You need to understand how you've got the IP structured, where it resides. If you're going to have IP sales outside the U.S., probably makes sense to have those rights sitting outside of the U.S. and a different legal entity. Also, when you go to sell the business, well, if you have trade secret insurance, it's probably going to be a little bit more attractive to say a private equity firm who recognizes that there's some downside protection in case somebody walks out with the company's most valuable asset. So now you're not just talking about there's downside protection, but it really adds a measure of value to the to the company if you have a handle on the value of your most valuable asset, your trade secret, and now you've got some protection around it as well. And to be clear here, that is where both of you can play a significant role, right? In helping people understand the value of these trade secrets to protect themselves and their company from these trade secrets. And it sounds like what you're saying is also to position them for a, a potentially greater financial outcome for those looking at an exit because they have that much more protection in the process. Is that right? 100% correct. It, it depends on the exit strategy. Should you have the um, company as a pass-through entity or, uh, or C-Corp? Where should the intellectual property reside? Should you have some of it in the U.S., some outside the U.S.? These are all factors that, from, from an Alvarez and Marcel point of view, we all work together in terms of not just valuing the IP, but working with Mary on the insurance, but also from uh, a tax efficiency point of view. These are, uh, we, I've seen more mistakes because companies don't think about this early on, and then it's too late, and they end up getting hit with, say, a, a very large tax bill that could have been avoidable. The other th one thing I would like to add is not only is this really valuable for private equity and VC funds, firms that are looking to invest in these companies or the companies who want those investments, but for lenders as well. So there are a lot of lending institutions out there, financial institutions that frankly right now are not able to or not willing to deploy their capital to companies that don't have a lot of tangible assets to use as collateral. And so if you're looking at to into the technology industry in particular, that's going to be very common where most of your value is in your IP assets. Well, now if you can get insurance behind those assets and use those assets as collateral and the potential insurance proceeds to pay you back, if that um, if there's a misappropriation event, which is, by the way, the most likely thing that's going to happen to your IP assets that would degrade the value of them, then that's a game changer for the lender as well. So it really opens up a lot of financial avenues that aren't there today. Awesome. I think this is fascinating. I, I love that you talked about the contracting process sitting on the blockchain. I think there's, a, there's a lot here, especially for the, the tech and innovation community to, to learn more about, make sure that they're protected, protected early so that they can focus on you know, building real valuable entities that, that are they're protected and, and, and you know, potentially don't lose value to others. So I really appreciate both of you joining us here today. If people want to learn more, Phil, where can they find you? They can find me, uh, Alvarez and Marcel, on our website. Um, um, click through to tax services and valuation services or um, email addresses we give out. Or, or You're welcome to. I don't know how yeah. you, uh, you call me, 732-822-8334. Feel free to call me or P-A-N-T-O-O-N at alvarezandmarcel.com. Awesome. Specifics. I love it. Mary, what if they want to find you? 
So we're at www.crownjewelinsurance.com or tradesecretinsurance.com. They both work. Uh, my email is mguzman at crownjewelinsurance.com. And we, you can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. At Crown I know, Jewel Phil, you're... Excellent. I know, I know, Phil, you're also in many of our uh, office hours, so people who are interested can find you there as well. If if we were in person, we do a lot of high-fiving at our events, so on the count of three, you can high-five your camera with me. One, two, three. Boom. Great to see both of you. This is very informative, very useful information. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Let us know your favorite takeaways on social media at We Are Tech United. Stay tuned. More of Tech United on Tap next.